Let's begin our study of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we will read about the qualifications of elders and deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Chapter 3, verse 1, it starts by asserting that this is a trustworthy statement. This is a trustworthy statement. It deserves attention. It deserves authority. It deserves application. It's trustworthy. It's something that God has given to the Apostle Paul, and Paul conveys to the rest of the church. He's trying to tell Timothy, Timothy, I know I'm not present with you, as he says in verse 14 and 15. He's not present with Timothy, but he wants Timothy to understand and to know that there are prescriptions and requirements for the leadership of the local church where Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, specifically for the the two positions of elder and deacon. It's trustworthy. Listen to what I am about to say. He starts in verse 1 by saying that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, there is a proper and right desire that one can have to be an elder or deacon in the church. That desire can be good and right in the sight of God if it is according to the will of God. The desire to be an elder or deacon is good if it is conducted and if it is pursued in accordance with the will of God. 
And we know that from the internal working of the Holy Spirit who prompts us and gives us desires and inclinations and gifts. However, we can also know from testing these desires by what the Word of God says about the person's desire, the man's desire to be an overseer or a deacon. It's good to desire, and the desire must be there, but it must be according to the will of God. He says here, the office of overseer, the office position of overseer in the local church. We do, do know that he's speaking of two main offices, overseer in verse 1 and in verse 8, deacons. Overseers and deacons. The term overseer is used here in the New American Standard Bible. The old Bibles, especially the KJV, will use the word bishop for this word. It's the word episkopos from which the Episcopalian denomination receives their name. And it is a synonym, this word overseer is a synonym for the word elder, presbyter, and pastor. All of these words are referring to the same office or function, the same position in the church. We can tell from 1 Timothy 4.14 that it is used as a synonym for elders in 4.14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The presbytery or body of elders. The Greek word presbyteros is the word translated typically elders in translations. Here the NASB uses the term presbytery or the Presbyterian denomination receives its name from this word. And as well... In 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, the NASB renders this term Presbyterian as elders in the plural. 1 Timothy 5, 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. This term presbyteros in the plural is in 5.17 and in the singular in 5.19. There we see that it's a parallel or synonymous word to the term overseer. Another term that is a synonym of the word Overseer is found in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Here we'll see that elder or elders is uh, an equivalent term to the term shepherd and the function of a shepherd. 1 Peter 5 verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet, uh, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. In verse 1, he exhorts the elders. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. And then in verse 4, he calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Chief shepherd. And then in verse 2, he calls on the elders to shepherd the flock of God among you. Elders and shepherd and pastor used synonymously. Now, specifically the term pastor, which is more common today, in, especially in our churches, Baptist and Baptistic kinds of churches, it, we find this in Ephesians 4, the term pastor. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11 and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. In verse 11, he gave to the church pastors and teachers, he says. The term pastor is a more common term that means shepherd. So, this one position has various names, giving us an indication of the duty of this function, the duty of the man in this function. An elder signifies that he will typically be older than younger, that he is an overseer, he oversees and is responsible for the ministries of the church. And as a pastor or shepherd, he has a flock that uh, is under his charge and he must make sure that they are fed properly and protected. Fed, sound doctrine, and protected from false doctrine. Verse 1, back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. He calls this a fine work he desires to do. It's a fine work. It's a fine, excellent, superb work in order to carry out the duties and the privilege of overseeing and shepherding the flock of God. To oversee and shepherd the flock of God is a fine work. It is a work that it comes from God as a gift and as a responsibility, as a charge from God. It is a fine work. It ought not to be disdained. It ought not to be ridiculed. It ought not to be put on the lowest shelf of one's uh, uh, life. It has to be and should be considered a fine work. It's a very exalted and, and responsible work given and issued by God Himself. Verse 2. Now, notice in this section how much emphasis is on the character, the virtues, the life, the conduct of the overseer, elder, pastor. Notice this. An overseer then must be above reproach. Above reproach. Your Bible may say blameless. To be above reproach or blameless, biblically speaking, has to do with the, the fact that there is no obvious and overt, blatant sin that characterizes the man of God. Certainly all of us have sin, all of us do sin, yet there should not be anything that is so obvious that it becomes an obstacle or stumbling block for people because they need to respect 
and honor what is being said by the man of God in this position. Examples of this. The first one will be Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, where this term above reproach or blameless has to do not with being sinless or perfect, but having no blatant, obvious, overt sin that is an obstacle for people. Because the pastor, the overseer, should be a model. The first example is Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 6. This is Paul describing himself in this verse before he was a believer, before he was a Christian, before he was called as an apostle. He says this about himself. Philippians 3, 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, found blameless. He meticulously followed the law. He knew what the law of Moses said, and he followed it faithfully. He's not saying he was not sinning. He's not saying he was sinless and perfect. He's saying that he generally, he had no, no blatant sin that anyone could accuse him of. He was not characteristically a liar. He was not characteristically an idolater. He was not characteristically an adulterer or a thief or a murderer. In, in, the, in that sense, based on law. People could not charge him with those kinds of things. As well, another example, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Here we have the example of Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Verse 6 says that both of them were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They are characterized this way. They were above reproach. They were respectable people. Now returning to 1 Timothy 3.2, it says further that this man should be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. From this phrase we gather that he ought to be a man. That's also in verse 1 and also in verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, we have indications within this passage that what he's describing is the characteristics of a godly man. Not a godly woman to fulfill this office, but a godly man to do so. We also know from chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, where he says, specifically nine, uh, for verse 9, 9 to 15 in chapter 2, specifically verse 11. He says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Clearly there, he prohibits women from teaching 
or exercising authority over a man. And the two reasons. The first one is based on creation. Verse 13, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Adam was created first, and then Eve. It's not only a matter of chronology, who was created first. It's the implications of that chronology. Adam was created so that Eve would support him, to be a helper suitable to him. Eve was not created to supervise him, but to support him. That's the first reason. In verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. The woman was quite deceived, and Eve even says that herself in Genesis 3.13. When God confronts Eve, Eve says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Because of her susceptibility to deception, and because she was deceived, not Adam, therefore, for those two reasons, creation and the fall, Adam is to be the one who teaches and exercises authority over Eve, and in the same way, this is applied to the local church. The husband of one wife. He ought to be a man and a godly man. And here it says the husband of one wife. This means that he ought to have faithfulness to one wife. It's not merely saying the requirement is that he should be married and have a wife and that it doesn't matter what his relationship is with his wife. He's not saying he needs to be just a married man and nothing else matters. He could not be saying that because this is a a list of godly virtues. It's a list of character qualities. So he must be meaning faithfulness to one wife. If he has divorce in his background and it's an unbiblical divorce, then we ought to exclude him or preclude him from this position. Or if he is a polygamist, then he is also excluded from this position. And then, what is the nature of his relationship to his wife? Does does he teach and guide her, lead her in the proper way, so that they, they together can teach and guide their children in the ways of godliness? He continues by describing the man as being temperate. He should be temperate. Temperate. He should have control of himself, control of his thoughts, control of his mouth, control of his desires, control of his senses. He should not be one who indulges, indulging in too much food, gluttony, too much wine, drunkenness. He should not be uh, an indulgent kind of man, um, a man who is erratic and out of control. He ought to have control of his senses and his desires. He's not perfect in it, yet he should not be charged with any kind of intemperance, lack of self-control. He should also be prudent. Prudence is another term for wisdom or wise. He should be wise, and prudence is more specifically how that wisdom is practiced. Do we see him as being a wise man who has knowledge, biblical knowledge, that he uses wisely? Then he would be prudent. He would be one who knows 
that we ought to understand a situation, for example, understand the facts of a matter, and then act biblically in accordance with those facts in regards to his own sin and in regards to the sin that he sees around him, sin that is confronted by him. He should have prudence, wisdom in dealing with this. And that where would that wisdom come from? It has to come from his walk with God and his knowledge and, and application of the Word of God. Only then can he be defined as prudent. He also should be respectable. Respectable, honorable. He should be a dignified man. Dignified in the sense that he's not, again, one known to be disrespectful himself, one known to be crude himself, rude himself. He's not one to be disorganized and unreliable. He should be a respectable man. People should be able to look at him as an example. Not a perfect example. The only perfect example is Christ. Yet he should be an example. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me as I do Christ. Imitate me just as I do Christ. Just as Paul was an example to Timothy, Timothy is supposed to be an example to others that he selects and appoints as elder. And then they, in turn, should be examples to the rest of the church. They should be respectable people. Further, hospitable. Hospitable people. They should, especially in situations where there's a need for lodging and food, accommodations like that, that the elder, the overseer, should be himself and his wife, because it takes both of them, the two of them should be hospitable people. If there is a need, especially for traveling evangelists, for traveling pastors, for those who are teaching and preaching the Word of God and going from town to town and city to city doing so, hospitality should be shown toward them, even if they are not very well known. As it says in Hebrews 13, too, let us show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so some have entertained angels without knowing it. In that case, it's even more remote of a relationship you know somebody who knows somebody and you know that that somebody is a pastor or evangelist from another place you don't know him and yet he has a reputation a good reputation so you accommodate him in your house but then this hospitality also has a local implication hospitality just as in this more foreign and distant situation in the same with the local situation implies that both the elder and his wife are generous people. They understand basic needs that people have and are very happy and willing to supply those basic needs of lodging and food. They should do, the, do that. They should be having people into their household, in, into their houses, in order to entertain them in, in this way. They show that, that thereby their own orderliness, their own ability to accommodate people into their own house, whether they, they are adults or children, their willingness to help them in this way and to befriend them in this way. It's inevitable that when 
eating together with somebody who's in your house that you will begin to make friends with the, those individuals who are in your house. This is necessary. It's necessary to show this generosity and friendship in order to develop relationships. Verse 2 ends with the one function, we may say, the one major function he should be able to teach. Able to teach. There are many men who fit the qualifications already mentioned in verse 2. But then the selection of these men becomes even more small and restricted because of this function. Able to teach. Is he able to explain the scriptures? Is he able to clarify the meaning of the scriptures? Is he able to handle the scriptures accurately as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15? Is he able to do so? Is he able also to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict? Titus 1.9 says, He should be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is what it means to be able to teach. Able to teach excludes eloquence. It excludes comedy. It excludes drama or anything else that we may think today makes for a good preacher or a good pastor. It excludes all of those things. How do we know that that, that is the case? Paul the Apostle himself was not known to be an eloquent and impressive man. In fact, he was known to be the opposite. Second Corinthians... 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 10, 10. For they say, he has this accusation against him, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Unimpressive presence. He's not winsome. He's not a charming man. He's not one, when you just look at him, you, you could sit there and look at him for a long time. He doesn't have that kind of, of, uh, of, of, of appearance, physique, handsomeness, whatever. He's not that kind of a man. Also, they're saying his speech is contemptible. He's not eloquent. He doesn't have uh, an elaborate vocabulary. He's not a good storyteller. He's not able to break the monotony by throwing in a joke, by telling us about his personal life and experiences. He doesn't catch us and hook us and keep us. He doesn't do that. His speech is contemptible. Now, there is some truth to what his opponents are saying about him because it says in 2 Corinthians 11, 6, 2 Corinthians 11, 6, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. But even if I am unskilled in speech, okay, I'm not the greatest speaker. I'm not... 
one who has superiority of speech. I'm not eloquent. Okay. But I'm not so in knowledge. And I made that known to you, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Another example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He was not the greatest of speakers. He could clearly explain. He could clearly understand. He could handle it accurately, the Word of God accurately. But he was not the greatest of speakers. He didn't come that way. When he proclaimed the gospel, he determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, if we're talking about Christ and Him crucified, we have to talk about God's righteousness and holiness. We have to talk about man's sin and depravity. We have to talk about death and punishment and hell. And when we do that, it does not attract the, the listening ear. It does not attract the flesh and the world. Nobody wants to hear these things openly. Very few want to hear about their own right and true condition before God. Only few people do. Paul said, I did not, I did not uh, succumb to that temptation. I resisted that temptation of doing so. I preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I didn't preach myself. I preached Jesus and Him crucified. And He did so in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Weakness and fear and much trembling before God. He didn't fear man. He did it before God. And he says, he did not use persuasive words of wisdom, human wisdom, earthly wisdom, demonic wisdom. He didn't use those tactics. He used the demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that people would trust in the power of God, which comes through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce a child of God. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to sanctify the child of God. He produces children of God, the Spirit does by the Word, and then He builds up and sanctifies the children of God by the same means. Paul knew that. This is the power he's speaking of. He used the Word of God to build up the church. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. And this is what he did. He preached Christ and the cross of Christ. This is what it means to be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, he further describes the characteristics of the man of God. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, he is not addicted to wine or pugnacious. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious. Being addicted to wine means that... One is intemperate. One does not practice self-control. He is uh, unable 
to control his bodily desires. He must not be addicted to wine. These days, we do have this problem of addiction to wine, but another problem we have these days is gluttony. It's more common to have people preach against wine, but not so much against gluttony. Gluttony is also another evidence of the lack of self-control. It's uh, another evidence of intemperance. We need to preach against both and any kind of, of sin. Gluttony is also against the will of God. We read this in Proverbs 21, Proverbs 21, 17. 21, 17. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man, and he who loves wine and oil will not become rich. He who loves wine and oil, meaning fat and all the, 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 the rich foods, Wine and oil will not become rich. Proverbs 23.20 Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. The people who pursue Heavy drinking and gluttony often are lazy and worthless people clothed with rags. Do not select a man, do not be a man who is addicted to wine and a glutton. He also says, or pugnacious. He may be associating this word pugnacious or pugnacity, one who is a fighter, one who uses verbal and physical threats. One who uses verbal and physical threats against others in order to insist on his way. He's a fighter or a striker, the old translations may say. A striker, one who threatens to punch and take out people or one who actually does so. Do not be with or associated with an overseer who's a pugnacious man. Instead, verse 3 says, but gentle. He ought to practice gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness should characterize this man. Gentleness in his dealings with one uh, another, gentleness in the, in the home, gentleness wherever he goes. Uncontentious. Gentle is on the positive side. He says, be gentle, but also be uncontentious. Uncontentious. He's not looking for quarrels. He's not looking for fights. He's not looking to be an enemy of everybody. He's uncontentious. He desires for there to be harmony. He desires for people to be built up in the faith. And he desires for sound doctrine to reign and rule. But he's not a meddler going around looking for fights and contention. A word of clarification on these two terms, gentle and uncontentious. This should not be taken to mean that there is no fight to be had. 
It, it should not be taken to mean that there is no conflict or warfare or fight out there in the Christian faith. He, we know that because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, 1 Timothy 1, 18, he exhorts Timothy. He says, This command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight that you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck, in regard to their faith. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. And lastly, in Jude. Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend <coughs> earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith needs to be defended. There needs to be warfare and a fight to maintain that faith. It should be handled in the proper manner, yet it needs to be defended and there needs to be a battle in order to preserve this faith. Now you may ask, what does this look like? Well, let me give you an example or, or a couple of examples if we were dealing with older men or older women we should do it according to the following 1st Timothy 5 verse 1 1st Timothy 5 1 do not sharply rebuke an older man but rather appeal to him as a father to the younger men as brothers the older women as, women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. If we're dealing with an older man, don't sharply rebuke the older man or the older woman, but deal with them as you would a father or mother. Then Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. On the other hand, Titus 1, verse 12. Titus 1, 12. Paul speaks of false teachers. Titus is in the island of Crete, and there too he's charged with the same duty as Timothy. Titus 1.12 One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. A Cretan himself has said so. And it's, it is from this term that we have the English adjective, oh, well, that man's a Cretan, meaning he's dissolute, he's, he's without self-control, he's excessive in what he does. He's a, a lazy glutton, for example. Verse 13, if that's the case, verse 13, this testimony is true. For this cause, for this reason, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. Some kinds of sins 
properly identified require a severe reproof. A severe reproof which has a positive benefit. What's the goal? That they may be sound in the faith. If one has a headache, the answer may be a simple solution, an aspirin. That's typically the the common answer to the average headache, an aspirin or some other kind of pain reliever. But when one has cancer, an aspirin will not suffice. One has to go into the body and excise that cancer vigorously, harshly if we may say, invading the body in order to remove that cancer. That's what Paul means in Titus. Sometimes it has to be done that way. He should be gentle and uncontentious. Yes. And then deal with the situations accordingly. Titus 3, uh, 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. 1 Timothy 3.3. 3, he says, furthermore, this man of God should be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. The love of money. It's not the use of money, it's the love of money. As one has said, we ought to love God and use money. Not love money and use God. We ought to love God and use money. And be free from the love of money. 1 Timothy 6. 6. 1 Timothy 6. 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. There ought to be, in this man of God, selected as pastor, elder, contentment. He should know. We brought nothing into the world. We're not going to take anything out of it either. We ought to be content with food and covering, not with the desire to get rich with many foolish and harmful desires. And when we pursue the love of money, it leads to all sorts of evil, and we wander away from the faith and pierce ourselves with many a pang. This is why the Bible says, the, the man of God not ought to be, he should not be pursuing sordid gain. The love of money, sordid gain. Filthy money, dirty money. He should not be doing so. Well, how does dirty money, filthy gain, how does that show up in the local church? It shows up by the preachers preaching a gospel that encourages wealth and health, or health and wealth. That is the love of money. That's how it manifests itself when they preach that way. It's also a love of money when the preacher does not trust God for his own provisions. He shows that he has sordid gain or a love of money when he's not trusting God for his own livelihood and provisions. He has a family. We all have needs. They need to be supplied. 
However, he should not compromise preaching the truth of the gospel. He should not be a double-minded man, a double-tongued man, a double-talker. He should not be doing that in the pulpit or in private conversations. He should tell the truth as it is and let God deal with the consequences. He should have confidence in God, trust God that God will provide his needs, and that when he preaches the truth, whatever happens in the church, happens in the church. That's the way he should be. When he's not doing that, he has an, a love of money, an inordinate desire for the money, not trusting God to supply his needs. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, For no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or money, material possessions. You cannot do both. It has to be one or the other. One or the other will be the guiding principle of the man of God in his family life and in his church life. Both cannot coexist. Continuing in verses 4 and 5, he speaks of the man's household. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He should manage his own household well. Is he teaching the Bible at home? Is he praying at home with his wife and with his family? Is he doing so? Is he concerned that they manifest godly characteristics? Is he teaching them the ways of God? Is he teaching them what it means to know God, to know Him through Christ? Is he teaching them how to make friends, how to discern, how to deal with the, the controversies and conflicts of the world? Is he preparing the, the children to be men and women, godly men and women, that they might go out into the world as adults and reflect Christ as lights of the world? You are the light of the world. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. So Jesus calls on us to reflect his light. Are we training them to be that way in the household? Are the children learning godliness? Are they under control? Are his children under control? Are they unruly? It, it should not be said that the unruly children are the pastor's children. That should not be the case. There's something amiss when that happens. But he should do so with all dignity. He should do so with proper self-control himself. He should do so with a proper approach to handling the discipline of his own children. Why is this important? Because he has a mini church in his own house. He is the pastor or priest, the teacher of his own family first. And he should love his neighbor as himself. They are his closest neighbors. And the greatest love we can show towards our neighbors is to give them godliness, to give them the gospel, to give them Christ himself. Give them that. Show them that. He has a mini church in his own household. Well then, when he goes to the community in the neighborhood and has a church of other families, if he can't manage his own micro church, how can he handle the macro church in the neighborhood? 
He can't do it. He can't advise properly anybody else because he doesn't have his own house in order. This is what Paul says in verse 5. If, he, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Rhetorical question. He cannot. He cannot properly do so. If he cannot properly do so, and the people don't have a good example, then he's unfit to be their leader. He's also unfit, in verse 6, he's also unfit if he is a new convert. If he's a new convert, a new believer, if he is new to the faith, then he should not be a pastor. This is regardless of age. Regardless of age. One might be 20 years old, come to the faith about a year ago, be enrolled in theological education, and then apply to be a pastor, and a church may hire him as pastor. That should never happen. He may be hired as an intern, as an apprentice. He may do that, but he should not have the control or the headship of a local church. That should not be the case. And in any case, usually what happens in those situations is deacons primarily are in control of the local church. The deacons are those who have a long standing there. They're the old timers in the church. The deacons call all the shots and they hire the 20 year old or something like that in order to fulfill, uh, to fill the pulpit so that the need for somebody to speak from the pulpit is met each week. But they control him. The deacons control that young pastor or any pastor in the average church that has a deacon rulership. They control that pastor and the pastor is their puppet. That, that young man, in some ways, he doesn't know anything. So the deacons are the ones who advise him and advise, and advise everybody else. He's just there to meet certain needs, to preach weekly, to conduct funerals and baptisms, and so forth. That's why he's there. He's not there in order to be a godly example and a godly teacher to the people. He's not there for that reason. And even if he were 50 years old and he came to Christ a year or two ago, or even three or four years ago, a 50-year-old should not assume this leadership role to be a preacher and teacher in the local church. He should also wait some time. He needs to overcome his unbelief of 50 years and, and presumably his wife's. Likely that's the case. The two of them need to unpack and destroy all the sin that's been accumulating in their life. If it's hard enough for the believer who's 20 years old, who's come to Christ, to deal with his 20 years of unbelief. Can you imagine what it is for a 50-year-old? He also needs time. He needs time to overcome. He too should be first, if he is called to the ministry, should be an apprentice for a while. And then, if his life is in order, according to these qualifications, then he is suitable to be a pastor. It happens everywhere. It happens everywhere where whether somebody is 20 or 50 and becomes a pastor, quickly, too quickly, it brings trouble upon the church. 
That should not be the case. Why does it bring trouble? Verse 6, Lest he become conceited. Lest he become conceited, arrogant or proud. Conceit. This can easily happen. Well, look at me. I just came to Christ a year ago, and all these people, they've been in this church a long time, and now I am their representative head. I'm their functional head. I'm called pastor. I'm called uh, mister. I'm called brother. I'm called uh, reverend. I'm studying theology. I'm reading all these books. I know more than them. He becomes conceited. He becomes conceited and therefore unteachable. He won't listen to anybody. He knows, right? No, and, and everybody else doesn't know anything. The, the 50 or 60 year old man who's been a godly man all his uh, life from his childhood on, he's been godly and he has life experience. He doesn't know anything when he advises me because I've been studying the Bible and I've been studying all of these books and my professors tell me thus and so. He doesn't know anything. I shouldn't listen to him at all. Well, there are many examples like that on one issue or the other that produce conceit in the new convert. And when that conceit is there, he says, the apostle says, and they fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The condemnation incurred by the devil. They have been entrapped and ensnared by the devil. That's what he means, this condemnation incurred by the devil. He says it in other words in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 23. 2 Timothy 2.23 But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. They are held captive by the devil. That's why they won't listen to anybody. And the prayer is that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. They've been ensnared and captivated by the devil to do the devil's will. This is what happens when conceit arises. The devil, along with the flesh of the new convert, work together to wreak destruction in the man's life and in the life of family and church. Verse 7, 1 Timothy 3, 7, now he speaks of the outside of the church. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Here again, the devil is at work. The snare of the devil, the reproach of the devil is at work when the man in the church does not have a good reputation with those outside the church. Why should anybody in the neighborhood and in the workplace or at the school listen to the one in the church when the one in the church has a, a, a dissolute and reckless and careless life compared to the person who's not in the church. There are some people 
who for one reason or another, unbelievers outside the church, are able to maintain a level of self-control in certain matters of life. They might not be drunks. They might not be gamblers. But they notice that the people in the church are drunks and gamblers. They notice that. Well, then he doesn't have a good reputation. If the unbeliever knows that that kind of practice produces miserable life for him, why doesn't the person in the church know that? And why doesn't the pastor himself know that? If the pastor's practicing those things, and why isn't the pastor preaching about these things? He has to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Otherwise, there is no testimony. There's no witness. There's no respectability. There needs to be that respectability. Hey, that pastor is a different man. He's a man of integrity. I can trust him. He's gentle. He's kind. He doesn't abuse his people. He doesn't abuse the system for his self-gain. He really cares about people. The man should have that kind of reputation. Only then should he fulfill this office. He cannot take this position unless these qualities are present in his life. This is the high standard. Notice, nothing here was said about having a degree, a theological degree. Nothing here was said about how tall he is, how handsome he is, how eloquent he is, how good of a storyteller he is, or anything else that's used in today's world to select a pastor. Nothing of that sort is here. In fact, everything against those kinds of uh, characteristics are here in this passage. 